This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Just about every architect worth their measure develops a design process that works for them. It's almost like a fingerprint. So Andrew and I are taking a day to talk about the design process and what that means for commercial projects and for residential projects. Today's episode is brought to you with generous support from Sierra Pacific. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, Andrew and I are going to talk about design, and we're going to do it in a manner that's proper to the sort of design conversations that you might hear if you were sitting next to two architects at a bar, like maybe at a convention, because Andrew and I do that sort of thing a million times. So, a year. A year. Except for this year. <laughs> except, yeah, except for no COVID-19 conferences this year. Yeah. So when I decided to actually start recording a podcast, the kind of conversation that I want to have today with Andrew, really, but with the people who are listening, is this is exactly the sort of conversations that I kind of had in mind. It's like, what would two architects sitting in a bar, you know, at the end of a day, they just start talking about design, they start talking about whatever things that architects do, and how does that conversation go? So with the table set, I decided I'm going to actually drink during this recording. What do you think of that? <laughs> Me too. Cheers. That's right. And I'm going to be drinking a a beer because that's the sort of thing that I might actually drink at a bar at a convention. And Andrew, what are you going to be drinking? Beer as well. I've got a Guinness here or two that I'm going to sit here beside me and take care of while we talk about what we're going to talk about. All right, here we go. So here you go. Cheers. Cheers. Ah, crack that baby open. <laughs> Mine's already open. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about the design process, shall we? I will admit, Andrew and I have to come up with these show topics months in advance. And after we've had some time to sleep and do other things, when the time comes to record a topic, sometimes neither one of us can actually remember what we were thinking when we came up with a particular topic. Yeah, because we just kind of throw a title in there and then it's no explanation. Yeah, well, I wonder if maybe it's because we came up with these topics while sitting at a bar having a beer. That is quite possible. <laughs> yeah, so for the last few weeks, I've been ruminating on the idea of big designs and small details, which is the topic for today. I finally settled on the direction that I wanted this conversation to take. It actually came to me at like one o'clock in the morning just a couple of days ago. And the reason I chose this topic, and really it was just a title at the time, it had to do with me changing my job. I just left my last office of 11 people and had taken on a position in a firm of over 100 people. And I was in the midst of changing just about every aspect of my design process as I moved from the high-touch, white-glove, residential, and smallish commercial projects to doing quite large master plan yield studies 300 to 500 to 1 million square foot projects. The change of scales was kind of crazy for me, and it was literally causing me to lose sleep. So that's kind of the origin story behind the title, which was Big Design, Small Details. And it really had to do with workflow. So let's talk about that, Andrew. Okay. Right? Yeah, let's do it. 
let me ask you this. When you sit down and you have a project that you're going to start working on, because your whole career primarily has been commercial projects. Yeah, not primarily, only. <laughs> I might have done uh, okay. two residential projects. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So when you start these at the white page portion of a project, where do you start? What do you do? It's one of two things, or maybe two things simultaneously. And again, if we've talked about in the past, I tend to design in section. And so I start to think about the building as a section. Also, at the same time, I'm thinking about really large scale ideas about how does it fit on the site, if it's a school or a municipal building, you know, how does it fit in where it's going to belong and what kind of shapes and forms is it going to have? Which... Okay, well, let me interrupt that real quick because I think that's interesting because now that you're teaching currently first year and third year students, mm -hmm. this is part of kind of what you get into in these classes like when you give them a project and you say hey we're going to design a museum or a school because i actually sat in on a crit for you for a school yeah a school of the future actually and they start do you help tell them hey here's your piece of dirt the first things you need to look at are do you get into things like i would hope you don't really get into setbacks but do you talk about how the building sits on the site, how do you get to it, if there's parking, you know, the sorts of requirements that exist in the real world, or you still keep it super high level, fun design kind of stuff? For the third and fourth years, I try to put a bit of reality into it, where we talk about things like, I mean, not necessarily setbacks, but if I've picked a site in a city, for example, they may have actual height restrictions in that location, so we deal with those things. So there's a little bit of that that we get into and start to deal with and sometimes parking, but I don't want my students spending half a semester designing a parking garage. So we kind of say, yeah, there's a big cube. The cars will work. It'll happen. Right. But it's an interesting thing and something that I'm starting to figure out about the way that my teaching works is really I'm trying to teach people how to do it the way I do it, which in a professional circumstance, it seems a little bit easier than it does in this make-believe, whatever project I want to come up with land. Well, wait, when you say it's easier, is that because the restrictions that are in place help solve some of the questions you might be asking yourself? Like in the real world, when they say there's setbacks and tight restrictions and adjacency issues, there's a lot of a lot of moving parts to it, but they actually help solve some of those design problems because you know you can't just do whatever you want. Yeah, and there's budget involved. I mean, but yeah, they're, they're actual real parameters, which are, you know, setbacks and codes and budgets and those kind of things. So it's a little bit easier to inform that situation, but I don't really want to do that teaching because really it's about trying to get them to think as creatively as possible, put a few parameters on there so that it's not just completely wild. But that's in my upper level classes. In my lower level classes, it's a free-for-all. It's more about thinking about things without any rules. But Well, let me ask you this. Maybe we should have let off with this, but the differences between commercial and residential projects Really, they couldn't be more different. In the high-end residential work that I did, every project started with a meeting with the clients, a conversation, discussion of goals, dreams, budgets, all sort of working parameters about how they live their life, how they want to use this new home, how do they envision interacting with not only the people that live in the house, but the people that they bring over to the house. You really get to know people during this time frame. The programming phase on a residential project could not look more different than the vast majority of the commercial projects now at Boca Pal, the office where I'm at now. It's completely different. Our commercial clients, they know what's going on. They're savvy. So they might actually just call us and say, 
hey, I'm going to send you over a file. It shows the piece of dirt that I'm looking at. I want you to do a yield study. And then in a week, not only have we figured out best use, we've actually designed a building just to talk about what you could do with this piece of dirt. There's no conversations about what it looks like or what materials. They might give us some budget, but normally when they give us budget parameters, it's normally like, hey, you know that other project you did here? That's kind of what we're thinking. Yeah, a reference point of, yeah, that one was 250 bucks a square foot. We're kind of going for that. Yeah. But I, I also think that, I think it's interesting that the way, I mean, the way that you talk about it. I mean, I've always said that residential and commercial projects and working are like two completely different animals. I mean, there's hardly any crossover in that, that realm of being an architect, I feel like. But I think the the thing that sort of sticks out to me in that scenario that you mentioned is that those sort of clients that you have now, again, like you said, they're savvy, but they also trust you to do what you want to do, right? There's a lot less explanation about sort of maybe not proving yourself, but explaining this is the reason why we're doing these things. And this is why, you know, I'm going to put this here as opposed to there. And this is going to take the shape that happens in a residential project, because typically those folks don't, you know, they don't do that a whole lot. I mean, they might in high end one or two or three times, but it's not like it's an everyday occurrence for them. Whereas in the commercial work, a lot of those people are doing it all the time. So they understand the reasons and the rationales for a lot of the things that you're going to do up front already. Yeah, we don't have conversations about it. They just expect us to know it and to do it. Exactly, exactly. And it's just not the same in the residential market. There's a lot more explanation, I think, that has to happen. I mean, not that that's good or bad. It's just that's It's just a little different. Or one of the differences, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, used to, I used to tell people that, and again, my, my perspective has changed now that I've made this change from what I used to do to what I'm currently doing. But when I worked on residential work, I used to think there were certain challenges that were inherently built into that process because, and let's be honest, if you're somebody who's hiring an architect to design a house for you, it stands to reason that you've probably have lived in a house before and maybe for the vast majority of your life, you've lived in a house. Like, or whatever it is you're hiring them to do from a residential standpoint, you've lived in one of those things before. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, you're not, you're not living yeah. in a, a trailer type of home and then having somebody design a freestanding 10,000 square foot house for you. Yeah. So most of those clients, they come to the table with a pretty good understanding of like how houses work. I mean, houses in the grand scheme of things, they're not complicated. You know it's going to have a kitchen and it's going to have a living room and it might have a den. There's going to be X number of bedrooms, X number of bathrooms, laundry room. There's a certain kit of parts that tends to exist on every single one of these. Yeah, the program is essentially always the same at its core. Yes. So really what makes the difference between one house and another house from a custom standpoint really has everything to do with the characteristics and personality traits of the people you're doing the work for. Mm -hmm. If you're going to build a glove for somebody, you're going to want to find out everything about the size of their hand. That's how that yep. works. Well, in the commercial projects that we work on, the people who hire us, this building primarily, it's not for them most of the time. We do have some build-a-suit projects that does happen, but we do a lot of work for people to where when you design a building that's a million square feet, it's not for a single tenant. Like, it's a developer that's doing this. Mm-hmm. 
And they have certain kind of financial goals and there's city goals and almost the rules that are in the code book kind of get thrown out to a certain extent from a planning standpoint because that's so much development that you have conversations with the city about all the rules you don't have to follow. (laughs) Yeah, sort of. Yeah. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. Yeah. I mean, I look at it and just like simple things like parking ratios. In my experience, you know, I did smallish commercial before, not enough to really move the needle. So they'd say, hey, for this use, you got to park at four spots per thousand square feet of building, whatever it is. And some of these projects we do now, they're so big that we get to make up what kind of number we want to design to. We want to say, well, they want to do 3.5 per thousand. Or, hey, the norm right now in this area of town is 5 per thousand, but we're going to go to 4 per thousand. I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around like that rule seems like that's a rule, not something that's nebulous. <laughs> it's not negotiable. But it completely is. Yeah, I think once the, the projects get to a certain size, for sure it is. So it makes the design process a lot different. And that brings us to a certain extent back to where this topic title came from, which was big design, small details. And let's say that someone hired me to do a residential house form. I still have all the same kind of boxes I need to check. I mean, I have setbacks. I have height restrictions. I mean, I have all yeah, these kind of yeah, things sure, that are in place. Sure. But normally what happens is you kind of come up with this idea, that idea that could fit in your hand. And everything starts to build upon and spin out from the singular idea as the project gets bigger and it manifests itself into something that has volume and space and square footage. Mm-hmm. It starts with something small and then extrapolates out. The commercial work starts huge. (laughs) It's exactly the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't spend time working on these little details on the beginning project. It has more to do with big gestures, big strokes that you're doing. Like, what's the big idea? And that's really what drives 90% of the conversation through what I would say concept design. I mean, we treat concept design and schematic design differently, but- There you go. How about that? That's a different thing altogether. When I did residential work, conceptual design, schematic design, they were the same thing. But now, not the same thing at all. Concept design is something that we'll get into when somebody just says, here's a piece of dirt. What can I do? It is really conceptual. And while you may come to a sort of agreement on what the concept is, it doesn't necessarily mean that the design is going to stay where it's at or that that's the the actual design that you're going to move forward with. So that's something that I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to make this, obviously, it is about me to a certain extent because it's my opinion. That's why we record these shows is just to kind of introduce topics. Well, you're on the recording too, so. Yeah, I, I see. I see how it works. My opinion doesn't matter. I get it. I no, get it. no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm <laughs> I'm saying you and I are recording our opinions. So in a certain extent, it's always about us to, a, well, de- yeah, to sure. a degree. I would agree. But what I'm trying to figure out is I'm not sure how many people, like I don't think my situation currently, like at this moment in time, the moment that we're recording this topic on this day is all that common. For me to spend as much time as I did in the high touch white glove residential marketplace, and then at 52 years old, making a switch to commercial projects. Yeah. That's not very common. Probably not. Yeah. And the reality of it is that there's such basic information that I don't know. Like, I can ask the question, but I don't know it. 
but I know all this much, much higher up level of stuff. So I end up having conversations with, you know, like parking garage design. I was talking to one of the partners at the office the other day and I was like, hey, can you spend like, I don't know, an hour and give me what you would consider a primer on parking garages is? <laughs> yeah. And it's not anything that was earth shattering. He did a really good job, by the way. This is the other Andrew in my life. Oh, really? He did. Uh, yeah. That guy knows some stuff. He's pretty good at what he does. Part of the name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he gave me this kind of bespoke go-to meeting on parking garage design. I knew enough to say, well, I know how parking stalls are and drive lane widths are and 11 foot clear for vans on the first level. I mean, there's common sense things that happen when you've been around the block as many times as I have that you kind of can just make some assumptions. And if they're not exactly right, they're so close. Yeah, they're pretty close. You're not going to get yourself in a jam. But like one of the things that I didn't know, and he started talking about the difference between A-class garages and B-class garages and C and D-class garages. And it all had to do with the percentage of slope that was on the ramp within the parking garage. So like a 5% slope is an A-level of service. 5.5% was a B-level of service. 6%, guess what? C-level service. So these are all things that for him, they're like stupid easy. Yeah. Those are things he learned 20 years ago. Yeah. I don't know those things. I do now. Because I just have to ask the question and then I get mm-hmm. the answer. But the clients that we work with, they expect us to already know these things. So we don't have conversations about parking garages. Yeah. They know or expect you to know the yield per acre for parking or whatever it is. So here's what's interesting about this. So to a certain extent, commercial work is far more liberating from a design standpoint Because the things that you should just know, you just know them. And the client, they just get out of the way. And they're like, go do what you do. All these parameters that are already assumed to be true, and we all know them. So we're not going to waste anybody's time talking about them. We're just going to let you go design a building on this piece of dirt. That's it. Like, they don't care. I mean, they care. Let me phrase that. They don't say, hey, I want it to look like this and I want it to look like that. It's not that uncommon. Like I'm working on a project now. It's a 300,000 square foot office building. And there's four of us working on it. We're all just designing our own schemes. And then they'll get presented as four different ideas, four different possibilities. Mm-hmm. There is no take three steps forward, re-meet, go, this is the best one, then put everybody on that one idea and then let them go a little bit further, then re-meet and go, okay, now that's the best idea. You're not working towards one solution. We're coming up with four completely thought through and articulated complete design ideas. Yeah, which again, I think goes back to that idea of that. I mean, most of the people, that's how most of my my municipal projects go. Sometimes my education projects, depending upon the, the school district, don't quite go that way. If it's the first school they've built in 40 years, it doesn't go that way. But if they've done one or two, then yeah. They kind of tend to step out of your way because they know they know that they can trust you to do things. You can come back with a couple of different options or four and present them and work them up. I don't want to say there's a, a different level of trust, but there's just a different kind of trust in a commercial environment than there is in the residential environment. Now, well, I agree with that wholeheartedly. You know, but there's nuances. So if there's younger people that are listening to the show right now, there's kind of two takeaways that you can have. 
The thing that made me really enjoy the residential side of what I did was the depth and the level of the design from a detailing standpoint that I could get into. It was all these small gestures that just add up and compound upon one another to make something that was intrinsic and beautiful and unique and what allowed me to do my job and have whatever measure of success that I felt like I had really stemmed from not just being a better than average designer, if I could be so bold as to say that. I'm bold. It, <laughs> I'm just joking, man. I, I know. It really had to do with my ability to talk and communicate and explain what was happening in a way that wasn't condescending or wasn't rude or made them feel like they were part of that process because I expected them to be part of that process. They were there every step of the way. Whereas on the commercial project we're doing now, they literally just hit the starter pistol and say, go. And then a week or two weeks later, we have four or five completely developed and articulated 300,000 square foot commercial office buildings. That almost makes my head explode because <laughs> on the residential side of things, we would have two or three meetings just to kind of figure out what it is they want this house to be. And then we would start to look at plan adjacencies and making sure that, hey, this use was next to that use and we have all the functionality that you wanted. I mean, it, it gets very high level from a plan standpoint right from the very beginning. Whereas most of this commercial work, we're not really looking at the plan other than a square footage total and how it sits on the site because it's just empty box. Even though if it was an empty box, you know, when you're working in, for example, your office building, right? There's a set of typical standards of office size or open office space or the way that offices work, right? There's not any, there is some level of bespokeness to it, but not in the same way that a house is. So some of those things that you can start to make work because you know the base basing of the structure or you, these things and you work that out so that fit three offices in there and then and the widths and all those things that start to be a little more standard, not standard exactly, but, you know, more typical. Sure. Like a, if you're going to do an office building, you want to design on a five-foot module. Right, yeah. I mean, there's things like that, right, that you know. Really, we're kind of saying that on commercial projects, you get big gestures. It's data-driven design. There's a lot of internal intelligence that's baked in because clients already know at a very high level of information about how the process works and what they want. Whereas on residential projects, the small details are really kind of what figures into this because your clients know how houses work. So you have to make it personal for them. Like, what's your experience? You know, I used to talk about the narrative. I still talk about the narrative a lot. But the idea of a narrative, like, so we would say, when you come home, what's the process? Will you come in the front door? Or will you come in the back door? Is there a place to put your keys? Do you take your wallet out of your pocket? When you walk in the door, do you set your purse down when you walk in the door? Or do you go back to your room, your bedroom, and put it away? I mean, we we really learn a lot about the human beings that are using this on the residential side. Commercial side, the people we're dealing with, they're not the users. We do get hired to do tenant work. So everything yeah. in that capacity, it's not what I'm referring to now. I know. But at the same time, while that's all very individualized, you think about those same decisions in a commercial project, but you're more about, okay, the average person is going to come here and when they walk in, they're going to go where, and they're going to do this. And if I'm going to go to this department, I'm going to go where. So it's a similar notion of how do people move through the space and do things, but it's not so personalized like it is with a home. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. We, again, this is this is the other Andrew in my life. He calls that a day in the life. Yeah. He does talk about what's the day in the life of, say, the janitor, or what's the mm-hmm. day in the life of the building maintenance person, or what's the day in the life of a tenant, which I thought was really great. I don't think he did that for my benefit, but it was the idea of, hey, when you got to haul the trash out and you got to walk a mile to get to the dumpster, that seems like a bad layout to me. Yeah, that doesn't help that guy. Yeah, that guy's got a terrible existence. He's cleaning up the office after hours, and then he comes down through this very circuitous path, walks out this door, and then he's literally got to go 1,300 parking spaces to get to that dumpster that architecturally is where you want it, as far away from anybody possible. But it's a really bad experience for the person who ends up using that every single day. So it's certainly part of the process that we think about. But it's at a wholly different kind of level. Yeah, it's it's just about the scale of those things changing. and <laughs> Well, it's also the janitor's not paying the bills. <laughs> well, true. That's true. We'll be right back with more Life of an Architect. Andrew and I are sitting here today with Andrea White, the Director of Architectural Sales for Sierra Pacific Windows. And she is taking time out of her day here at the show to talk to us a little bit about Sierra Pacific, their company, some brand new products that they're coming out with, and they have a really amazing offer. So Andrea, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Will you tell us a little bit about the company? Sure, I'd love to. We're a West Coast company, and Sierra Pacific Windows is a division of Sierra Pacific Industries. We're actually a very large lumber company. We own a little over 2 million acres of timberland in California and Washington. Wow. And we grow all of it sustainably. Wonderful. So we plant a lot more trees than we harvest. (laughs) We're certified to SFI, which is the Sustainable Forestry Initiative. What's really cool about the company is our vertical integration. So we own the land. We manage the land sustainably. Then we take the trees to our sawmills. We have 14 sawmills. And there we convert that to lumber. We take the lumber to our millwork plants. And we make lots of different lumber products, but one of them is window components for wood windows. So very vertically integrated, very environmentally conscious, and all sustainable. We also do a really unique thing that people like to hear about. Tell me. We take the biomass from the forest floor, so the twigs and things that we can't sell as a product. And and we sell a lot of products because we even make pet bedding. I was like, can't you turn that stuff (laughs) into MDF or something? (laughs) So we take the biomass or some of the sawdust and things in our plants that we can't sell and we burn it. And it's clean energy. And what we're doing is we're creating energy so that as we're burning that biomass, We're using the steam to kiln dry our wood, and then we're also using it to turn a turbine that creates energy, so that's why we call it a co-generation. We're doing two things. Obviously, it's good for the environment because we're creating our own energy. We have seven co-generation facilities, so we use the power at each of those to power the plant, and the excess we sell back and put it on the grid. That's great. I mean, I think that's like the responsible way everything should be done. I think that's fantastic, actually. You probably get a lot of positive feedback on We that. do. Yeah. We have architects come and tour our plants, both facilities. We have a plant in uh, Wisconsin and one in California. They come and tour. When they see the California operation and they see that firsthand, they visit the sawmill, they hear from one of our foresters how we manage the land, 
and then they see the cogen plant they're just amazed sign me up <laughs> you're invited <laughs> so i know that there's a brand new product that sierra pacific is putting out and it's the timber curtain wall mm -hmm. and i would love if you would indulge me to talk about that today so it's just like curtain wall with a wood interior so it's pretty unique wood is very sexy these days everybody likes seeing it with the mass timber craze it's heavily engineered so we take your project do our shop drawings then we construct the glue lamb beams in our plant we put it all together pre-drill everything pre-notch pockets assemble it label it take it apart ship it to the job site and then it gets glazed on site just like curtain wall wow that's you really can, cool it's beautiful i'm sure it is beautiful and we can even carry roof loads with it wow really <laughs> got right. your attention i know well yeah, you know that's impressive sierra pacific is doing something that i think is really neat they have a nice offer for the people who listen to the show today so sierra pacific is available to visit your office and conduct a lunch and learn to talk about their sustainably harvested products and to provide samples yep. and i know that i would like to see one on the timber curtain wall because it's something that i can already imagine i'd like to use that you're talking about it mm -hmm. and i'm thinking how can i use this it's exactly it what cool. happens architects love it and we do have a continuing ed on curtain wall well that's wonderful if you would like to learn more or schedule a lunch and learn at your office please visit www.sierrapacificwindows.com and try their architectural consultant locator. We're going to put a link to that at the bottom of today's post so you don't have to remember it. You can just go to the show notes and that link will be there for you. Don't do it while you're driving. No, don't do it while you're driving. <laughs> Andrea, I really appreciate you coming in today and talking with us. Thanks for having us. It's our pleasure. The other thing I would say uh, that I think that always sort of comes to mind to me about the idea of the commercial client versus the residential client, you were talking about working with big developers and on giant projects, but even my smaller commercial projects or tenant infills even, it's kind of funny to me, but they don't rely on their own intellect in a way or their own knowledge about something, which to me is what happens, as you mentioned with a house, right? Everybody lives in a house and they know how a house works and all these sort of things. But, you know, if I'm doing a 3,000 square foot tenant finish out and it's a bar or something and these people haven't ever done one before, they're totally relying on me to know everything that needs to happen. They're just like, hey, we want to open a bar. And, I, and they go, you need to make that happen, right? And so I'm the person that has to know, you know, all the house codes, all the building codes, all, the, all those kind of things to make it work. So it, I think it, a lot of it comes from the fact that, right, just in the commercial realm, it's not something that people are, I mean, either they're really familiar with it and they know that you know what you're doing or they don't know and they don't try to tell you because they, they will admit they don't know, right? But in a residential sense, like you say, everybody lives in a house of some sort and has ideas about how that should work and how they want that to be and exactly how things go. And this is what I do when I get home and, you know, all those sort of things. And I think that that's really, to me, has always been one of the major differences in commercial and residential is that level of, I guess, expected knowledge on our part and maybe even acknowledgement of that knowledge and skill on our part. There's definitely some truth to that. You know, it's funny. I just got through, well, I'm not through, it's still ongoing, but we kind of went through the design phase is kind of done and we're in CDs now. And it's for this huge renovation 
of a fairly significant development in the Metroplex. And the people who bought the building are making a lot of changes. And one of the big things that's kind of going on in the commercial world right now is this amenitization arms race. Uh, Nowadays, yeah, whenever we're doing office buildings, it's like, who can offer more features? How many tenant lounges are there? Conference centers, workout facilities, after our bars that are part of the building, as opposed to a tenant that's within the building. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. So what's been interesting is I used to always say, hey, it's different when you're designing for people who were spending their money, as opposed to when you're designing for people who it's not their money, they're just the people you report to. Yeah. It's kind of what I refer to when I say it's data-driven design. Yeah. I will confess that there are times when someone says, hey, my budget's $3 million for this house. And as we go through the process, they go, ooh, I want to do that. And they love this. and They love that. And I know we're going over budget. And I'll say, well, you know, we're exceeding your budget. Well, they really want to see where it's going. And if it comes in at $3.5 million, I can't put a percentage to it, but more times than you would think, they just come up with the additional funding. Yeah, they want to make it work because they're so attached to it. Yeah, they don't want to not have the thing that they now have ownership of and go, that would be amazing. Yeah, I want that. And that they want because they're going to experience every day. That's right. When you do these commercial projects, they're like, here's our budget. Comes in, they're like, oh, we're $2 million over budget. They're like, get rid of that. Get yeah. rid of that. Get rid of Cut the lazy river. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're not going to have that pavilion out there, exactly. you know, whatever, because. Yeah. Because it doesn't change their day-to-day experience. Yeah, exactly. So that preconceived notion that I had played out exactly the way that I thought it would. However, there was one additional fold to it. We're designing this tenant loungy space. It's kind of part of this conference center that we were doing. And we have a really strong interiors group in our office. They're really good at asking the right sort of questions. And they're putting together all these pallets and they're beautiful. Well, these clients that we were working with, who are actually really great, these guys are great, like nice, supportive, they're into it. They start saying, hey, well, I went to this bar the other day and it had metal on the front. I really dig it. So can yeah. we put metal on? They start designing this commercial project like it's their project, <laughs> right? Like as if they have ownership of it, when the truth is it's highly doubtful that they will ever actually use this facility for its intended purpose. Yeah, I guess I guess it happens, right? There's that difference. Yeah, it does happen. Like there's that that wholesale difference, commercial residential that you would kind of imagine. But there's this little bit of overlap, and sometimes that overlap can be fun, and sometimes it can be a giant pain in the butt. Yeah, sometimes it can be a nightmare. I can relate to that from maybe a school standpoint. Like I mentioned earlier, is like if the school hasn't done a a new building or anything in forty years, there's a huge amount of ownership in it from the school board. And even though it's not their money, it is their money. But yeah, they start to really get into it. But the schools that do it more regularly, it's not quite the same. They're not so invested in it. They've commoditized it to a certain extent. Well, yeah, but it's their school. Even though I can guarantee you, they'll never step foot in it after the day there's the grand opening. <laughs> yeah. But it is, they, they have some serious ownership over it. There is some overlap there, and it just depends on the market in which you're working, but it does happen. So let me ask you this. So when we started off today's episode talking about the workflow or the work process for commercial projects versus residential projects. Yeah, we ditched that pretty quick. 
Well, we kind of did. <laughs> we kind of did. But it's still been floating in the back of my brain with all the things I've been saying because. Yeah. Because, like, for instance, the 300,000, 285,000 square foot office building I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. I can't not think about the little bits and the execution and it's bogging me down. Whereas I know that some of the, the other designers in the office don't have that problem. They're steamrolling through this stuff. And I think that is part of where you came from. Yeah. I think there's pros and cons, you know, and this kind of gets to questions that I talked to some of the leadership folks at my office. And that is my talents as a designer or whatever you want to call me at this point in my career is not the guy that that's really modeling, even though there's a certain pay your dues mentality. It is forcing me to think about things differently by going through this process. Sure. But I do think that when I sit down next to somebody who's working on something and they might be a little bit junior than I am, I ask them questions that I guarantee you they're not thinking about. Yeah, no, I agree. To me, it's interesting that you're doing some of the work that you're doing but I mean, maybe that's just because it's a break-you-in process. But to me, from where you're coming from, your skill set and your level would be applied almost later in the process. Not that you don't have valuable things to contribute in these broad strokes, and maybe that's part of it, that the goal for you would be to adapt your more refined and detailed level thinking up to a bigger scale. I think that, in my opinion, your current skill set lend you more towards after some of this conceptual stuff. And then they start to think about when we actually start doing schematic and design development, these are the things that we should be thinking about. But maybe that's part of the process and this evolution of your current career is that you're maybe trying to figure out how to apply your more intimate level detail ideologies to a bigger scale. You're 100% right. But you know the way that I've kind of articulated it or how I've made sense of it in my own brain? Let me hear it. I mean, I know I'm right, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the way I'm thinking about it is if you're going to do work in France, you need to learn how to speak French. Mm -hmm. So part of what I'm going through right now is I'm learning how to speak French. Yeah, that's true. I can still ask all the right questions. And I know that I think about things that these other people don't, even though they could probably advance the ball from a design standpoint for this sort of building type faster than I can. I can come in there and go, how, where's this and how's that? And this is kind of hall and that piece of glass is going to be a premium because it's X big and you need to be able to make sure that this experience exists for these people. They don't think about that kind of stuff. Their ability is really, and I think this has to do with age. I think this is one of the things, I think it's true with doctors. I think it's true with lawyers. I think it's true with architects. The number of questions that we can ask increase exponentially with the amount of experience that we get. Yeah. So we don't actually have to do the surgery to find out what's wrong. We can kind of just read the symptoms and go, this is the direction that this is going because I've been down this path so many times. My practical experience tells me that this is the right thing to do or the right moves to make or this is the direction we need to take it. And younger designers, on the plus side, they're not inhibited by the realities of some of these outcomes yet. Yeah, right, which is a bonus. Yeah, well, it's also why when we went and did all this recruiting at these schools, you know, I'm talking to these kids and they're all savvy enough. There's enough information out there to where they all kind of go, well, how long do I have to spend doing toilet partition details? <laughs> exactly. How do I have to do bathroom design and storage design? Well, I tell them that and I go, you know what? You could start at our office 
and design a high-rise office building in your first month on the job. Mm -hmm. It's possible. That amount of knowledge or the lack thereof, the encumbrance that that puts on the design process to a certain extent works really, really well. So we have all the designers for the most part in our office. They're all very, very young. Yeah. And then as they grow, that's when they move into project management. You know, they move into construction documentation roles. This is their process of learning how to speak French as they do work in France. I agree with that, right? And that's actually how I would do my office. Once I had 10 or 12 people in my office, I rarely designed anything. I would let them go. My younger staff, I'd be like, hey, we got to do this, do it. And then they'd present me with ideas and I'd be able to say, well, because of codes or budget, these kind of things, we need to scale this back or do this differently or think about this. But I agree. I think that's a good approach because there's a certain amount of restriction that just comes from your brain naturally after you've done stuff for too long. Because I'm eight steps ahead of the process and it keeps me from being able to think as freely as I wish I could. Yeah, for sure. You know what I need right now? Hmm. A bartender. Yeah, me too, because I finished my last beer. <laughs> yeah, so if we were going to keep this conversation going, we would need another round from the bartender. Yeah, I don't have a delivery service. <laughs> well, since there is no bartender, I think that it's time for us to move on to the hypothetical for this episode. Oh, okay. You ready for that? You sure? I think so. Okay. No summation of the, the whole conversation? No, because this is a bar conversation. There's no end to it. Oh, there's no end to it. It could go on infinitely, and it could. We could continue to talk about this for a while, but I think we did cover some good ground. Yeah, so this really is... Okay, so here's your summation to a certain extent. See, there it is. I know, because only you prodded me into it. But I think it's necessary. I mean, I think we should. Okay, well, how would you summarize it? <laughs> it's a lot easier to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, so... Let's try to relate it back to our title of Big Designs and Small Details. I think that it relates to the idea that there are different scales of design based on the market that you're in and the course of action, the progress that those things work, which is often entirely based on the client and their knowledge of your skill set and maybe their acknowledgement of your skill set, but that definitely the commercial versus residential market there are some splits there, and it does lean one way or the other, which may suit your personality. Or if you're like Bob, you can flip-flop. You can do it all. That's right. It's not that it's easy, though. Definitely not. I don't mean I don't think either one of them are easy, but... No. As the saying goes, nothing worthwhile is ever easy. Never, ever, ever. And your summation, my friend? My summation is probably not as lengthy as yours, but it just... <laughs> And that's not a bad thing. Yours was quite mm. good. I was like, I was willing just to walk away. All right. No, but I would say that if I was trying to wrap up the conversations, having started with the idea of big designs and small details, and that is that the process and project types that you work on, really that creative flow stems from what the expectation of a deliverable is and the knowledge of your client who's asking for that deliverable. Yeah. When we work on big projects, the clients really are kind of staying out of the way in the beginning. Mm -hmm. They're like, just do what you do and hit me with it. And we work on big gestures and big concepts, and that's what we present. Then if it goes somewhere, then we start to whittle down towards the nuances, the small moves. 
Whereas on the residential projects, my experience has been that you start with the small idea, the thing that you can hold in your hand, and everything pinwheels and spirals out of that conceptually as a design process into something that ends up adding up to the whole. You start small and go big on residential words. You start big and go small on commercial. Okay. All right. Let's hit the hypothetical. Let's move on to the hypothetical. So this is one that's been on our list for a while. And if I had another beer, it probably would be very energized. <laughs> I know. I wish I had another beer. I but know. anyway. I know. But it, And we can't pause to go use the restroom either. So, So let's get into it. So here's the question. Would you sign up to be a colonist on another planet if it meant you would never be able to return to Earth? Now, I will add to this because I know you would ask the question because you've got kids. Actually, I wasn't going to ask that question, but yeah, I see it. Go ahead. You know where it's going. So most colonists tend to be able to bring their families along with them. So that could be a consideration, both good and bad. You may want to go, but your kids don't. They're like, there are no other 11th graders on whatever planet X is. Yeah. Right. So that might actually have an impact. Like if you were unencumbered by significant others or children, what would you do? I'm down. I'm gone. You would do it? Yeah, I would really like to do it. Actually, though, for me, the question would be, is that is it one of those necessity things? Earth is doomed and so we have to leave <laughs> and me leaving gets to save humanity because I'm going to go to colonize somewhere else. Or is it a situation where the colonization is already I mean, not done, but it's not a matter of we're going to save the human race. You're just going because, hey, you can go. And we found this other place that's hospitable. To me, that starts to make a little bit of difference, maybe. I think, okay. Because I think Uh, it would go either way. Here's your answer. Yes. Well, here's the clarification to that comment. All right. The Earth is on the way out. Ah. But it's not going to terminate life within your lifespan. Am I like? The first colony? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say that okay. you're on the Space Needle. I'm on Mission 1. Yes. That go, goes to Planet X. Yes. You know, to where the whole, you're cryovacked, and you're going to wake up in 13 years. Yeah. And arrive else. on this planet. Yeah. It's the closest planet that could sustain... Human life. Human existence. Okay? I still think I'm down. You think I so? I think I would want to do it. Yeah. And the reason I say that is I love space. I geek out on space stuff. I have since I was a kid. And of course, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was younger. I think, yeah, I think I would do it. Now, if in the scenario that you're talking about, I would want my children to come with me. They don't want to go. They don't want to go. They're out. I don't care. They're coming with me. They hate you. Well, that's fine. But you're saying that the Earth is going to die. Then they're coming with me. No, but not in your life. Maybe not in but their in life. their life. No. Oh, also, well, when you're colonizing a planet, you got to go and like set up infrastructure. Like this is a long game. You got to plan ahead. Yeah, for yeah, this yeah. Stuff. No, okay. So but probably yeah, not in their lifetime either. Okay, then fine. Yeah, I'd still go. It just seems exciting to me. While I know it would be difficult and probably really, really difficult, there's still a level of excitement to me about going into space and doing something else and actually sort of starting from scratch. I think that's really cool. It goes back to the idea of if we were time traveling, I'd go back to like early, early civilizations because I think it would be neat. To build your own cabin. Yeah. Yeah. To be at a point where there's not this world that's already been built, but the fact that you get to build it. Part of me thinks that's the architect in me that wants to do that, but I think it still would be, it would be cool. And again, if I had to leave my kids, I'd probably leave my kids. If (laughs) if I knew the earth wasn't going to 
Well, I'm just saying, like, if I knew the earth wasn't going to die off and their existence was in jeopardy, I'd probably sign up. I'd be like, yeah, you know what? That's fine. You know what that sounds like to me? What's that? That sounds like if you didn't know they were going to turn into zombies, you would put them in a dog kennel until they survived. <laughs> no, or not the same. <laughs> it's totally the same. It's totally the same. <laughs> oh, you're dragging that back. Yeah. I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, you just stepped in it. For sure. <laughs> But no, I think it would be cool. But that's because I like space. I, and I do think it would be difficult. And there would be this a probability of death and all those kind of things. But I just like the idea of being able to do that. If people could go to Mars and we start colonizing Mars, I'm like... Sign me up. Sign me up. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Because this is something that I think about. Or rather, I think that people, when answering this question, don't think about it. Okay. And that is... It's kind of the idea, if you get on a rocket ship, uh-huh. and it's going to convey you from point A, which is Earth, to point B, which is something very far away. Sure, planet X. You do not have to provide for yourself. So there's that comfort that comes from, I don't have to bring like a bunch of cash with me because <laughs> I'm not buying food. Yeah. All I have to do is do a job. Yeah. I have to contribute. If that means I'm shoveling dirt or planting potatoes and poop or whatever, that's my job. And I'm yeah. doing it because... The being there is what matters, not what I'm doing there. Mm -hmm. But if you had to say, well, we got a bunch of essentially FEMA type Mars shacks that everyone's going to get, and you're going to have like a caste system rather than everybody working for the common good. There's people that live in luxury and people that live in squalor. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever thinks about that. They just think, hey, we're all in this together. We're all equal. We're all contributing to a common objective. And everybody's the same. Tell me you didn't think of it in that capacity. No, I didn't. You know why? You did. I've too. seen a couple of mo- no, I've seen a couple of movies <laughs> where they're actually doing that. They go to colonize another place, and it's a forty-year cryo sleep deal, and the whole thing is based on how much money you had going in. And so, if you had a lot of money going in, your life on the spaceship was like posh and nice. And if you didn't, you were a working class, below blue collar kind of person. And that's how you got there. You were grinding, grinding, grinding. So, I mean, I did think of that. And I don't know that it makes much difference to me for that opportunity, so to speak. I I think I'd be fine with it. You know, I wonder if it's the socialist in me that likes the concept that everybody's got the same level of... (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I, like it. That would be the dream. That, right? That would be the ideal circumstance that it was all equal and everybody was at the same. There's a part of me that thinks, in reality, if this was first mission colonization, rich people aren't going, right? They're not going to give up what they have to go try something else and live in a no. hazmat hut on Mars, right? So, in a way, to me, part of it is that if it is first mission, now, if it's one of those things where we've colonized another planet and they've been there for 40 years, eh, different story, but. That first mission out, I feel like that's not a lot of rich people that are going to want to do that. Well, they're also, they're not bringing schlubs, right? So everyone's got yeah. a very specific skill set. That's why they tend to be on that first ship. Exactly. But, you know, the reality is, I don't think they're bringing an architect on that first ship. Oh, of course they are. I don't think they are. Uh, I think they would. I don't think you're setting up towns. You're not doing master planning when you start to colonize this planet. Because you know what? You're bringing your town with you. It's not like you're going and felling trees No, on that first wave. I don't think architects would be that either, but I think it's more about the urban planning idea and the, and the way that 
if you start to look at other places, if you're going to, let's say, one spot on the planet, but you're going to look for other spots that are possible for habitation, then I think an architect would be a good choice. And then also, I think just working out the logistics of, of the whatever, all the hazmat huts and how it sits and relates to everything and all those sort of relationships between those things as an urban, urban a quote unquote urban planning um, perspective, I think for sure. Not to mention we're just awesome, you know, big, big scheme thinkers. Interesting. Have you seen the the uh, new uh, Lost in Space series? Oh yeah, no, I love that series on Netflix. Yes. Yeah, it's totally cool. Yeah. So have you noticed that everybody lives on their ship even when they land on a planet? Uh, yeah, I have. Right. And yeah. even, even when there were town environments, again, they were like plastic FEMA rectangles that everybody lived in. True. And it seemed like they were configured in a way like the, the scale of it was not so much that they had to do like they weren't fortified for protection. They didn't have inner rings and outer rings. And, you know, the guild was on the inner ring and the laborers are on the outer ring closer to the, the death animals or whatever it is <laughs> yeah yeah but it, i mean but at some point as things progress you'd have to think about those things right and I, I think that that's where we would come into play of once we got there and landed and realized all right well we need to make sure that you know these people are on this in this area because they have access to whatever the raw materials that we're using to do this and so that's where the labor force goes and blah 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 all those kind of things i think it comes into play well, and, but maybe I'm just I'm just egotistical and I think I should be there because I should be there. I think it's I think there's some of that figuring into it. Probably because I'm not sure that the first wave, the scale is such that it it requires that sort of scale planning as to what goes where and adjacent to what. and what. The well, I don't know that it requires it in the first phase exactly, but I think, you know, I think it would be. In my mind, it would be helpful to be able to say, all right, for the second, third, fourth, fifth waves, this is what we want. And these are the kind of people that we need and blah, blah, blah. And no offense to the engineers, but I, they just don't look at things the same way. Right. Like, right. Because I'm I can guarantee you there'd be a ton of engineers on that mission. Sure. Well, you know what? You never asked me what my answer was. going. No, be. I, I was waiting. You kind of dove into something else. And so I was going to ask you what you know, what is your answer on that thing? I think my answer is I go. You would go. Okay. I would go because the truth is I, I can't imagine why somebody wouldn't go. When I was reviewing our list of hypothetical questions that you and I came up with, probably also sitting in a bar. <laughs> yeah. I thought, hey, that one could be fun to talk about. But at the same time, I go, what's there to talk about? Who wouldn't do that? And the only reason why I think somebody wouldn't do it is because there was a reason why they felt like they had to stay here. You know, I've got my daughter, Kate. If she couldn't go, if it was just like me abandoning everybody, I can abandon everybody but my family. Yeah. I'm not so beholden or tied to any material things that are in this planet or in my existence that I wouldn't leave them all behind for the adventure of what if. For sure. But but your family. But my kid. Yes. That would that would be. Oh, wait. wait. Just your kid? No, no, no. <laughs> I don't need to be specific, but. You know, but the yeah. truth is, is like when I look at the milestones that are from this moment in time looking forward, Michelle and I, what are our, what are our milestones? Yeah, they're not yours, right? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're Kate's milestones. Like I want to see I her graduate from college or get married or have a kid. These are her milestones. And 
the only reason why I go, this is what's holding me to this planet is the a part of her milestones. Yeah. You know, that's where I feel like I might be a little bit different. I might just go because I feel like my daughters are going to be okay. Granted, if it was tomorrow, maybe a different story. But if it was 10 years from now or something, well, different. But I understand. Yeah, right. It's like the milestones of your children that you kind of want to be around for. That would be hard. Yeah. If she was down to go, like if the family was like, yeah, sure. Okay, let's do this. Man, I would. I don't know if I'd lock the front door. I would just drive to the launch pad. (laughs) No, I wouldn't. I'd probably throw a match on my shoulder and burn down my house <laughs> as, I was, as I was driving away. No, I got some good stuff in here. People help themselves. I don't even care. I think the family thing, it's the biggest factor in all of it, right? Yeah, it has to be. And if they want to go with me, great. That's what I would prefer. What if I said you had a 50-50 chance of dying? <laughs> I don't know. Then it starts to get iffy. Again, it depends on the... <laughs> It depends on the time point in my life in which I am. Right it now. Tomorrow, it's right now. Yeah, if it's tomorrow, that would probably change it. I might not. Because what, what are you living for if you're punting out on everything that's here? So I go, if you're just throwing a match over your shoulder and going by yeah. yourself, I don't think that the 50-50 matters. Because I'm not suggesting that you're going to die gruesomely. I just You're going to leave. You're going to cry back and never wake up. Oh, ouch. That's your fifth that's your fifty fifty, right? That's my fifty fifty. That's your fifty. It's not like I get to get there and then die because I get no, you don't sucked know. off into the atmosphere no, or something, you don't. but I just don't even wake up from my cryo sleep. You just never wake up. You just there's well, that's a no. The seal breaks, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a no. That's a no. <laughs> yeah. But you don't yeah, but you don't know that. So now that I don't understand. What's that? If you're really willing to throw a match over your shoulder and go by yourself. I don't think the percentages of whether you survive the journey or not figure into that decision process. Because what else are you living for? I mean, my kids. They're gone. You punted out on them. No, no, no. Because here's the thing, right? I'm assuming that whenever I get to wherever I get to, I can still communicate nope. with my children. Can't. Why is that? Because you got frozen for 13 years to get to where you're going. How are they going to send a message back? Through 13 years worth of travel through space to your kids. You need to watch more movies. No. It happens. No subspace, Trekkie. It's not subspace. It's just, it happens. I'm saying it's not happening on this hypothetical. What? (laughs) We don't. I mean, it might be delayed, right? It might take how many ever years for their message to reach me and my message to reach them. Okay, so let's, it seems like it would still be possible. Okay, so let's say it takes you 13 years to get there. So that means you send them a message back 26 years from the moment you left, they get a message from you. And they're like, cool. And then 26 years later, you go, thanks. Uh, we shouldn't be 26, and I don't know it'd be 13 even, but yeah. I want to go for the adventure, so I'm not going to go if there's a high probability of me dying. Of no adventure? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> of no adventure? I mean, if it's a 50-50 shot, I don't know. If it's more like a 20% chance, well, okay. 50-50, that's not really good odds of me surviving the cryosleep. Apparently, I'm dying during cryosleep. That's a pass. Because the reason I want to go is to go to the other place. Well, I'm just trying to make it peaceful. I'm not saying I want it peaceful. You're, I'd rather die getting sucked out of my hazmat suit on Planet X than die. You're in just walking. You're walking sleep. down the hall. You're walking down your space corridor, and you get hit by a piece of space trash, and it breaks a hole, and you get sucked through a crack that's a quarter of an inch wide on your ship. <laughs> or 
You just don't wake up from cryosleep. Which would you choose? I'd choose to get sucked through the quarter-inch hole. No way! Yeah. At least I'd get to be around the spaceship and check it out and stuff. That would hurt. I'm pretty sure that would hurt. <laughs> I don't care. The experiences up to before that would be worth it. Okay. If I go to sleep when we take off and I don't ever wake up, well, that's just terrible. That's lame. Maybe you don't go to sleep for a year. <laughs> I was like, I may as well just go to sleep in my bed and not wake up. Hey, well, you, <laughs> well. It happens, I know, but I'm just saying, right? Like, what's the difference? Okay, all right. I think we've reached a point where I'm going to call this hypothetical and the show a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 48. Big design, small details. We would like to thank Sierra Pacific for their gracious support of this episode, as well as our media partners, Building Design and Construction. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe button so you can get sweet and juicy new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. While you're there, please go on and leave us a five-star don't focus on that just now rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofarnarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this glorious episode. Be sure to stick around until the very end, and we'll share some outros from today's recording if there are any. Be safe, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. The breathing and the popping and the stuff like that, that's a beating. I hear the shot at me. I got you. It's not a shot. And that you're pretty consistent with your... um... Have we not, have we not always known? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know. I am silent to explosive. It's you. I am only the extremes. That's just how I work, man. (laughs) One or the other. I know. I know. In, In all things, apparently. That's, I didn't even finish that. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Okay. I know, this is me working. This is what you get from me if I work at 2 o'clock in the morning. I didn't know you were working at 2 o'clock in the morning. God, it's all I do is work now. Hey, wait, wait, hold hold on a second. Hold on. Give me like, Mm -hmm. give me like 30 seconds. Sorry. sorry. Yeah. Sorry about that. What'd you What'd you do? I had to go tell my family what was going on. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> you can listen to what I said later while you were gone. Oh, delightful. <laughs>